Hi, everybody. This is Science Modeling Talks, the podcast that features top modeling instructors and thought leaders sharing ideas. I'm your host, Mark Royce. Remember to visit sciencemodelingtalks.com to access extra content related to our interviews and to learn more about our guests. While you're there, share your thoughts and comments by clicking the link that says, Tell us what you think. We really want to hear from you. Okay, let's get started with today's episode. My guest for this episode is Dwayne Debian. Dwayne received his master's degree for physics in 1993 from the University of Kansas and his PhD for science education in 2002 from Arizona State University. His focus has been on classroom management in a reformed science classroom, in particular as it relates to the modeling theory of physics. Also, curriculum development for the modeling physics classroom at the university level and assessment of student learning as it relates to curriculum development. While on the team at ASU, Dr. Debian taught several university physics sections aimed at adapting the modeling method from high school to the college level. He is still developing and evaluating materials for use in the modeling approach to physics. His materials are continually being developed and are currently in use at various institutions across the country. Here's my interview with Dr. Debian. Hi, Dwayne. Hi, Mark. How's it going? I'm going good. How about yourself? I'm doing well, thank you very much. It's a little cold out here in California. In the Central Valley, we're socked in with uh, overhead clouds and fog, and it's kind of cold, so... (laughs) For us, anyway. So, and you're in Arizona. Well, how's it going there? It's a little chilly for us too. It's only 48 Fahrenheit this morning. So for us, that's pretty chilly here in the Phoenix metro area. Yeah, yeah, it is. Oh, wow. So you're teaching. What's the school you're teaching at right now? Um, I'm in my 22nd year at Australia Mountain Community College, which is on the west side of Phoenix in the metro Phoenix metropolitan area in the city of Avondale. Ah, okay, cool. In 22 years. Yeah. Wow, that's a good long time. So um, I I know that besides teaching at that college, you're also involved with a lot of research and, and development of curriculum for others who are, especially for those who are in college and university settings. Uh, tell me a little bit about your work there and the research you're doing. Um, well, I've been part of a PI on multiple grants that have provided professional development and or curricular development, um, particularly for community college, but also some high school, to be honest. Um, our last gr- two grants that we worked with, I worked with a gentleman named Tom Akuma out of Lee College in Texas. Um, we actually were, for both community college and high school f- faculty, we did curricular development, we did professional development on everything from coding in your classroom to actually writing more interactive based labs on better pedagogy um, to just teaching classroom management skills to using alternative tasks such as tippers tasks inspired by physics education research which include things like ranking tasks what if anything is wrong tasks um, things like that Um, and we held three-day workshops for that for about 11, 12 years, and that was actually a continuation of a project that originally had started with Kurt Higlicky and Tom Akuma back in the early 90s, which is actually how I got into physics education research at all. 
Um, then just this summer, um, through the American Association of Physics Teachers, we actually put in a grant to create an organization called OPTICS, um, which is the, oh, I can never remember the acronym, but it's for two-year college physics faculty um, through APT to provide professional development for seasoned faculty, for new faculty, for um, DEI training, and all kinds of different things like that. Um, and everything from also doing a survey of community college faculty across the country so we actually have a better feel for what is being done at community colleges because there isn't really a large historical data of what has happening at community colleges like there is at universities and high schools because the AP, excuse me, the AIP, American Institute of Physics, actually provides and does a high school survey of physics quite, uh, quite frequently and does one for colleges and universities annually. There's only been two in the history of community colleges done, huh. and one was funded by Tom and I's grant about 13 years ago, and that was the last one. Wow. So it also includes funding for a new one of those to get a better idea of what's actually happening in the community colleges, because, you know, 13 years ago, we found out that about the, well, the majority of students of color and or of um, underrepresented groups take their physics actually to community college at the college level, not at a university. Huh. And so we're really wanting to see if that's changed or if it's still the same and how we can impact and do those things. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about some of the results you're finding and the, the effect that you're having in those studies and, you know, research projects. What's going on there? One of the things we found is that we can have large impacts. Um, what I mean by that is we've had community college faculty changing across the country. We've changed many of the high school teachers um, in terms of what they do in the classroom. Um, and to be fair, it wasn't that we were doing so much true research for publishing as we were trying to do professional development and change how classrooms are managed, utilizing other groups' um, research what I mean was like the tippers as an example. Um, that was instigated by Steve Keim out of New Mexico State, who's now retired along with um, David Maloney, who's at Indiana Purdue Fort Wayne University. I think I got that right. Um, and some others. But doing things like that to try to um, really bring those tools, modeling as an example. My, my PhD was in physics education research in terms of classroom management. How do we manage the classroom better with a research-based curriculum to actually improve student learning? Um, what kind of things would that be? So most of you who've been through a modeling workshop, if you've gone through and done like the um, what's often called the board meeting or the circle, um, that was actually a growth out of my PhD research, my dissertation. Um, that was something I actually brought in um, to the modeling curriculum. And so... Um, that was, those are the things we were trying to get across to the folks and trying to get them to implement in their classroom and to help them understand how they can assess their classrooms, you know, utilizing the tools such as the FCI or the CSEMs, Conceptual Survey Electricity and Magnetism that are out there, and how to utilize those correctly in your classroom, not just, you know, there are people that give those for grades, and of course they were never intended to be for grades. They were purely about how can we improve as teachers and sometimes getting administrators to understand that and getting us ourselves to understand that sometimes that like on the CSEM, your students average a 40%, that may be a very good result. And to mm. teachers as us, you, you see a 40% result and you're like, oh my God, I failed miserably. When it may be that that was actually a very good result because a typical 
university class will only average probably on the neighborhood of, oh, I don't know, 50% post-test, mm. you know, from like a Harvard or a Yale. And so, you know, you're, you're getting a 40% in your high school or your community college. That's a great result. Yeah. And getting them to understand that and to be a little less harsh on themselves. Yeah. You mentioned about that you had helped introduce the idea of the board meeting in the classroom using whiteboards. My wife told me that it was you that she discovered board meetings from and that it really transformed her her classroom experience and the involvement with whiteboards and how it became most effective. So tell me a little bit about how that, I know it's been a while for you, but how did that come about? For you that you developed the idea of the circle around and have a board meeting. Talk to me about where, where that came from. It was actually a class I had taken at ASU from the education department taught by Michael Pyburn. Um, and he, one of the things that we read in the classes and the research we were reading about in that class talked about how if we can break down any barriers to student-to-student interaction, that that is going to create the best classroom discussions that we can have. And so one of the things that I was teaching at the point at a community college adjuncting while I was doing my PhD uh, called Chandler Gilbert Community College here in the Phoenix metropolitan area, and they had an open space in the middle. I'm like, okay, so why are we having students presenting their boards from the front where their classes, where they can be distracted, you know, working on their own boards? Why not put them in a circle where they're all at the same level, they're all at the same height, the whiteboards are all visible so they can ask each other questions about different whiteboards? Mm. Um, and it grew out of that. Mm. And it really was that first time I put them in there and, you know, and started looking at and what the research said about, okay, because yes, you've got them all at the same level. There's not one group up presenting. They're all equal. Um, everybody's whiteboard is visible. So if somebody sees something on somebody else's whiteboard, it's much easier to have a discussion. It's much easier for students to hold students accountable when they can see. It's, you know, it's much more difficult to hide behind your whiteboard or hide behind your phone and not be a part of the conversation when you're in that circle. And that really was the impetus when I saw one of the many things I tried to do with my dissertation and the research I did for that take off and really start to see improvement among my students and really seeing the classroom discourse improve dramatically. Hmm. That's awesome. I, uh, I am impressed with how uh, that has evolved over the years here, and uh, and that's a great contribution you made. So so tell me, um, wh- when it comes to you in the classroom, what would you say are kind of your personal specialties as a teacher in the classroom? Um, I would say probably one of my biggest specialties is the ability to what I defined in my dissertation is called seeding. The idea of seeing a group struggling with something or working on something and planting an idea, just seeding an idea to them and being able to walk away and see how it grows. And that's a very challenging thing because if you you can't just give a hint, it has to be the right hint. It has to be phrased the right way to that group. It has to be planted. You, you can't you can stick around too long after you plant it and you my term is overwater and it drowns. Or they just take you for what you say. You have to be able to plant an idea and seed an idea so that when it comes to the group discussion that it seems like it was that group's idea because it's much more likely to be questioned by their other groups and or um, 
you know, argued about by the other groups if they don't think it was from Dwayne. Because if it was from Dwayne, then they're just going to kind of accept it. But if you can plant that seed and get that group to take it in and bring it, make it their own, so they bring it to the circle, and then they're defending it, not you, not me, um, it makes it a very powerful thing. So that's one of the things I think that I do really well is that classroom management, which does mean that you're thinking on the fly. You can't have the notes prepared. You can't have the lesson plan completely prepared for how that class is going to go. And so it's it's a version of just-in-time teaching. And I know that means something in education different than I'm meaning it. But I, I mean it that I, I walk in with into a classroom with a general idea of what I want to do that day. I don't even have prefab problems. I literally am doing the class on the fly as I go based on the classroom discussion and how the class is going. Yeah, it's awesome. I am most familiar with uh, modeling in the high school settings. Can you talk to us about kind of how modeling is different and how it fits into the university college settings? Um, the, the core principles are exactly the same. That, you know, the physics is based on a small subset of models, the particle model, the extended body model, the rigid model, the constant velocity model, the constant acceleration model. All those things are still the same, okay? There's nothing different there. Um, Probably a couple of the differences in terms of um, things is most of my classes I teach the calculus sequence primary base excuse me primarily, and what that means is that they're a little better prepared than my, the average student. Okay, mm. so they're not you know uh, they have to take it. I don't end up with students that are assigned to take physics. Okay, I do teach a conceptual physics class, which is actually probably my favorite course to teach, um, which would be closer to the high school. Um, mm in terms of the student capabilities and so on. Um, but one of the things I've found is that there isn't a lot of differences. And I've had this discussion with many a high school teacher. They think, well, you teach college students. They're so different. I'm like, yes, they, they definitely matured between August and May. <laughs> okay? Yeah. Okay? Um, no, they're exactly the same. The only difference is we don't have any parental oversight and so on. But in terms of the curriculum... I, I don't necessarily follow the high school curriculum, you know, the, the modeling curriculum per se, but the tenets, the ideas, the idea of what science is, and it's based on the models. You develop a model, you take it as far as you can go, and then you add complexity to it as you need, not just because you want to. There's a need. You run that model to its limitations and understanding what the limitations of those models are. Um, and a lot of times when I've run a modeling workshop, and whether this is for high school um people or college folks is I ask them the same question and it's a great question to really get them to understand that sometimes they don't even fully grasp the model themselves so if I take a particle um, and another particle they both have mass and by the way the definition of particle something has no size but has mass and or charge and I drop one through the air and one through water so I have a column of water that's one meter high I have a column of air that's one meter high and I drop a particle through both which one hits the ground first and just listen to both the teachers and the students struggle with that question. And the answer, of course, is they hit at the same time. And But that's very, you'll, you'll very seldom will get teachers to get that right at the start because they're stuck, well, water's more resistive, it's harder. But it's a particle, it has no size, so therefore it displaces nothing, so therefore it's going to fall just like it's through air. 
and actually understand the limitations, the, the, the assumptions that are built into these models that sometimes they haven't fully developed either. Right. Interesting. We'll be right back to the interview. But I want to encourage you to check out the AMTA's Meet a Modeler series on YouTube. You can learn about featured modelers by visiting the AMTA YouTube channel at youtube.com slash C slash AMTA teachers. That's youtube.com slash C slash AMTA teachers. This is a great resource to use if you're leading or taking a workshop or modeling course this summer. Now, back to our interview. Are you finding, um, are you getting students coming into your course classes that are have been introduced to modeling instruction in high school? Or what's, I'm kind of curious about the percentage of students who are coming in these days that have been exposed to modeling methodologies. 10 to 15 years ago, there were more coming in with modeling as the background huh. from their high school teachers. Interesting. Um, but... Out here on the west side of Phoenix, which is the, one of the big growth areas of Phoenix, um, so many of those teachers uh, went on to better paying institutions than the west side of Phoenix. Oh. And so almost all, the newer, almost all the teachers that teach physics out on the west side of Phoenix are newer. There are still a few pockets. David Worth is an example, um, who just recently retired as the National um, Teacher of the Year through... Um, ASU and some of the other things through APT and one of their programs, but it was really nice because all of his students would come and I'd have them, and so we would have some background with them. Right. But unfortunately, so many of the, those teachers have moved on, and we don't. They don't have the background at this point. It doesn't mean they won't, but it's and several of the school districts also made the push that they wanted to do AP. And, of course, when they did AP, they forced them out of the modeling because that just doesn't, in some regards, those are not compatible. Hmm. And, in my opinion, aren't compatible at all um, in terms of if you want to do a good job because you're teaching what the AP curriculum is supposed to be so they can pass the AP test as opposed to necessarily learning physics. Interesting. But that's a bias of mine, and I'll I'll acknowledge that up front. (laughs) It's okay for you to have biases. (laughs) So... um that one of the areas that you have focused on is the idea of alternative problem-solving techniques. Tell us about that and what your study and your, and your insights are on, on. Would love to because that's actually uh, one of my favorite topics. Um, I will tell you that one of the biggest things that stuck with me that David Heston has ever said um, to me personally or to a to most workshops when he used to go into those was that. Most physics faculty, and he was speaking about high school, college, or otherwise, practice what's called vector avoidance. Okay? They try to do anything to avoid using vectors. And one of the things that that really said was that they needed to be able to do vectors. And even in the modeling curriculum, in my opinion, all too often the first thing we do when we see a vector is we break it into its components, X and Y, so we're dealing with scalars again. And so with that... I really started thinking about a how can we utilize vectors to actually solve things, and more in particular, how can we use all these graphs we're doing. So we're doing you know kinematics graphs at the start of the semester, 
Okay, you know, you're doing velocity graphs, you're doing acceleration graphs, and we talk about them, we talk about the slopes of them. You look at the slope of the velocity graph, that gives you the acceleration. You look at the slope of the position graph, that gives you the velocity, and so on. And then, of course, the area under a velocity graph tells you about the change in position. The area under an acceleration graph tells you about the change in velocity. But I really, well, I'm going to tell a story about myself just for fun. Um, I was teaching a um, honors class um, with Mike Politano, who was a research assistant for David Hestness at the time at ASU when I was working on my doctorate. And what that meant for me is I was a glorified paper grader. I got to grade the papers and, you know, he did all the good stuff. Um, but I remember a student turned in a homework assignment where all he did was use, utilize the area under the velocity and acceleration graph to solve all the problems. He didn't do the kinematic equations at all, you know, the typical x equals x0 plus v0t plus 1 half at squared. He didn't use them at all. He just did areas under velocity and acceleration graphs. And by that, he turned a ridiculously hard problem into a trivial one. Hmm. Okay, it's a, kind of a famous one in modeling at some level called the Rocketeer problem. But what I found was, I, I you know, I had struggled to do it the algebraic way myself as the grader, and, you know, I get this little... 18-year-old kid doing, actually to be fair, he was only 17, um, your kid who did the whole problem in like a half page, and it, you know, kind of disgusted me that I didn't think of that. And so I actually talked to the student and said, how did you think to do this? He goes, well, we're doing all these graphs in lab and, you know, in discussions. They had to be more useful than just that. And so I started looking into it and realized that I could do almost all of the kinetic, kinematic problems that were offering students, that were giving to students, by merely using geometric shapes, the area under the velocity graph and the area under the acceleration graph, to solve it. All the equations, no memorized equations, come from finding the area of a rectangle and the area of a triangle. Hmm. Because in a constant acceleration model, those are the only shapes you can get. So if you have a velocity graph that's going up, positive slope, you're either going to have a triangle or a triangle plus a rectangle. And utilizing only that idea, you can solve almost all kinematic problems easier than the algebraic way. Hmm. And that was something that struck home to me. I'm like, okay, so how far can we extend this? Well, then you start talking about Newton's third law. And, you know, the force under on one object is the same as the force on the other object describing the same interaction, but equal and opposite. Well, those graphs, force versus time, look exactly the same. So the area under one equals the area under the other. Well, that leads directly to conservation of momentum. So the idea of utilizing these graphs to do that was really powerful to me. And to this day, I don't teach kinematic equations. Hmm. My students never see the standard kinematic equations because we do everything by areas under velocity and acceleration graphs. Now, what that really means is they're doing calculus because that's really doing an integral. So I'm teaching students, whether they're in conceptual physics or calculus-based physics, to do it all from first principle integral basis as opposed to some equations that they've memorized. Um, and it really helps utilize some really neat problems that way. The other thing that I introduced was what I call goalless problems to these kinds. What I mean by a goalless problem is there's no question asked. Huh. So, you know, I might walk into the classroom and say, I'm going to drop this marker from two meters high. Tell me everything you can. Go. And so based on the physics they've learned at that point, there are certain things they can extract from that. And we'll revisit that problem throughout the semester as they learn new tools, learn new models. Okay, let's revisit that marker drop from two meters. What can you tell me now? 
Wow. Okay? Yeah. And so, in other words, instead of A, how fast is the marker going when it hits the ground? B, how long does it take to hit the ground? No. I dropped the marker from two meters. Go. <laughs> okay? Because it opens it up much more. And then when we do like two-dimensional motion, and that's really where I get into the idea of teaching students to use vectors and vector addition to solve it, because then again, it turns into a triangle. In this case, you're using trigonometry to do it, to solve the problems. And many of the two-dimensional motion problems that we struggle with getting our students to understand, such as you shoot something off a top of a hill and it lands at a point lower than it started, which using kinematic equations can be very troublesome to students. Doing it using a vector approach, truly a vector approach, where it's V0T vector plus one-half AT squared vector equals delta R change in position vector turns it into a triangle that you can solve using triangle, right triangle trig, or in some cases you have to do the law of sines and law of cosines. But again, it's almost always simplifies the problem to a point that it's easier for students to actually do the mathematics and focus more on what's going on. And so those are two that I've really approached hard that way and sell, yeah. sell to my students. Yeah, alternative problem solving. So you, you use the term I read, uh, you problem formats, and I didn't understand what you meant by that term. Can you explain that to me? Yeah, what I mean by problem formats is all too often standard textbook problems or even some of the modeling curriculum problems are designed to utilize a specific equation. Okay, oh, I, I should use this equation to solve it. So I want an equ I want a problem that doesn't have that as obvious. Some of those need to be conceptual, some of those need to be mathematical. So that goalless problem I described a few minutes ago uh, is an example of an alternative problem format. Those tippers that I mentioned earlier in a previous answer, which tipper stands for tasks inspired by physics education research, um, is an example of alternative problem solvings. Um, it's an example where I have a ranking task. What does that mean? I give the students six physical situations where there are some subtle differences in the givens in the problem and they have to rank it based on some criteria so a very simple example is i've got six balls and i'm dropping them all from the same height and they have different masses rank them based on how fast they're going when they hit the ground okay and you can vary what things you give them and so on and in doing that you can start probing do they truly understand that mass doesn't matter in that case if you're using energy in your dropping particles and so you can probe it so that's an example of a ranking task um, there's what what if anything is wrong problems sometimes the idea is you give a, a statement to a problem like um, a ball is thrown and its velocity at its highest point is something it doesn't really matter but you give the student some statement and you have a student answer the problem answer in other words there's an answer provided and the students have to critique that answer is that answer reasonable does it make sense if not what is needs to be fixed in that answer okay to make it reasonable um or there's alternatives again where you have a problem situation or it could be just a conceptual question and you get three students giving answers and which student do you agree with and why or none and why um, or there's what if anything is wrong problems where you have a situation where you've given it, you get an answer, is there anything wrong with it? If not, fix it or decide. So in other words, you're getting the students to think about problem solving concepts in a way that 
makes them not just go to equations, but they have to critique, they have to think, they have to decide. And it really forces students to decide, does mass matter? Do I really believe that? Because otherwise you're going to make that ranking wrong. Then the example I gave earlier of those six balls being dropped from the same height with different masses. Yeah. And of course... It, it does, and so there's there's a whole series of kinds of questions like that, um, from the ranking test, the what if anything is wrong problems, to the who do you agree with, um, and it's just really fun to throw those out there and force them to go beyond what is very common for them is, okay, here's a physical situation, I apply my model to it, I get an answer, okay, the deployment of the modeling cycle, um, but okay, Critique this student's answer, student's answer, who's been, who, which has been written to evoke, you know, misconceptions and see if they can find them or not find them. And by the way, one of the meanest things you can do to the students on those what if anything is wrong problem is give them a problem where there's nothing wrong. <laughs> because that's hilarious to watch them struggle with that. Yeah. I know that you believe that teachers should be rethinking what they teach and why they are teaching that. So can you kind of expand on that to, and explain yourself a little bit on how, how do teachers rethink what they're teaching? How do they understand why they're teaching something? Yeah, that, that is a deep question that I would love to say I could change, <laughs> but... What I mean by that, and what I'm going to imply with that is, all too often we teach things because that's what we were taught. Right. The curriculum that we still teach in first semester of physics is still the same overall concepts that were taught 100 years ago. And the question is, how do we bring more modern physics into this? How do we bring more modern ideas into this? How do we utilize a really good modeling idea and allow us to do some different things with the curriculum. Um, for example, and I'm going to pick on one that I, anybody that's known me and had conversations about modeling, okay, the idea of linearization of data. So you've got a quadratic function and we linearize it so we can do the slope and do some things with it, which is a very common thing done in the modeling curriculum. My question would be, in the age of graphing calculators, programs that will do all kinds of different things, why are we still spending the time to do that? Okay, when there's other things I think we would better be better served. There is a place for technology, and I will tell you, I don't remember the last time in my research or anything else that I linearized data to do anything. Hmm. Okay, and I think personally, to me, in a lot of cases, it obscures what's actually going on. Hmm. Because if I take a parabolicized position versus time graph and I linearize it, I'm it's much harder for me to interpret what's actually going on at a certain, certain time than it would be to merely look at that graph. If I can see it's curving, oh, it's going faster or it's going slower based on how the curve is going. And so that's what I mean about I think we need to reevaluate some of these things at the ground level up and really question why is it we're still doing some of these things? Why is it important? And the answer sometimes is yes. And in some cases, I think the answer could be no. Hmm. And that would free up time to actually have more in-depth conversations. One of the things that I would suggest, and I do see it creeping more and more into both modeling and, in general, um, physics classes, is the idea of computational physics. Doing problems, 
that we can't do algebraically or even calculus-wise by hand? How can we bring real-world problems, more realistic problems, into the situation by teaching the students some basic coding skills? I think that should be a more important aspect because the real world doesn't have nice constant velocity, constant acceleration motion problems. We're not really dealing with particles that don't have air resistance. We are dealing with those things and how do we deal with those? The other models are important because they build and help us build those computational models. But until we start making a concerted effort to make that a real part of the curriculum as a whole, I think we're selling our students and the their ability short because there are so many coding languages out there that make this much easier than it used to be. Um, I personally use uh, Visual Python which for with my students which is and there are there's um, other ones that are used but I use Visual Python because it makes making animations that the students make trivial. I mean I can get students up encoding um, making objects move and do different things having all kinds of different forces acting on them that I no way otherwise could in a matter of one class period. Hmm. And that's an example of rethinking what we're doing because that allows the students to do more interesting problems, more real-world type problems. I mean, the quite simply, the cup drop. If you take a Dixie cup and you drop it, that's not going to behave and fit any of the models we traditionally teach in the first <laughs> semester of physics classes. But yet computationally, we can do it by building off of those models, in particular, even building off the idea, what I mentioned earlier, that the area under a velocity graph has a meaning, change of position, area under an acceleration graph has a meaning, change of velocity, and you can actually argue from those two points very quickly how to actually do the physics yeah. of that computational. Mm -hmm. One question I have is, do you, I, I know, you've just presented a whole bunch of very interesting uh, information if any of our listeners wanted to connect with you or follow you do you have some kind of social media presence or do you post you know your thoughts and stuff i i i tried for a while <laughs> and i really realized that um that that wasn't necessarily my forte um yeah but um I think I think I even got to all the way to triple digits and Twitter followers at one point in wow. doing some of these things. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> silliness. But I, I really don't. However, if anybody wants to reach out to me, please do. I'd be willing to have these conversations. Um, I attend almost all American Association of Physics Teachers meetings, the national meetings. Like there's one in Portland in January that I'll be at. So if they're there, come find me, come talk to me. I'll be willing to have that conversation, whether over a beer or just an appetizer or just sitting around. Do you want to share your email? That was my question. Would you like to share your email with us? Yes, listeners? it is actually just my first name, D-W-A-I-N dot Dabian, D-E-S as in Sam, B as in boy, I-E-N, at Estrella Mountain, E-S-T-R-E-L-L-A, mountain dot E-D-U. So again, Dwayne dot debian at australiamountain.edu cool thank you and we'll also post that on our website with that'll go along with this episode so uh, sciencemodelingtalks.com and uh, 
Wow, Dwayne, this has been a great conversation, and, and I really appreciate you sharing your insights and your knowledge with our listeners. Uh, I think that a lot of people are going to be very well informed by this episode, and I just want to say thank you for <laughs> taking the time to speak with me and to share your thoughts. It's been really great. Thank you for having me, Mark. It has been my pleasure, and if, if you don't mind, I'll leave one piece of advice that I leave almost every workshop I end with and that's be willing to make a mistake don't be afraid to go out and make a mistake because odds are you're not going to do any worse than just lecturing to your students be willing to try something new and fail because at least you're trying to improve for the students that's awesome well I hope you have a great rest of your day and uh, I look forward to uh, seeing whatever comes from you in the future it's going to be great so thank you again thank you Mark thanks so much for joining us on another episode of Science Modeling Talks head over to sciencemodelingtalks.com and you'll be able to listen to any of our archived episodes and access our show notes which include guest bios show highlights and links to resources that were mentioned during the interview. While you're there, subscribe to our show so you won't miss out on any of our episodes. When you join this community through our email list, we'll send you a link to a lot of awesome resources from the American Modeling Teachers Association. Okay, so that's our show. As always, remember to keep striving for excellence in your classroom. <laughs>